0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. I'm delighted to have as my guests Patrick Lindquist and Gary Mitchell. We've had a previous conversation on the future of work, and we're taking that conversation further today. We're going to be exploring some really difficult and thorny subjects around long-termism versus short-termism, the pace of change, what's valued in business, and leadership. So if we can start with 60 seconds, Patrick, on what you're doing at the moment in your role uh, within Helsingborg, please. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for having us back. Frequent listeners will know I'm
1: engaged in an initiative to create systematic innovation in a small city in in southern Sweden, Helsingborg. And uh, we're currently uh, moving our focus from engaging the many people, uh, all the employees, uh, which uh, in Helsingborg amounts to about 12,000 in the innovation work, towards a more strategic approach where we want the various departments to take uh, strategic uh, responsibility for their portfolio of initiatives. Uh, So... uh, Whereas we before we're just trying to get things moving and get everybody involved and any idea was interesting, we're now moving towards steering our initiatives towards those areas within the city's delivery that really need to change. This would have to do with either overarching needs that need to be addressed throughout the city, so they're thereby not being owned by a single department and or uh, actually, Addressing the core delivery of any one department, it's easier to start initiatives, you know, in the fringe, things that don't really challenge your 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 core business logic. But actually, working with those questions that are at the core of your delivery, that's where the true value can arise. So we're working with that sort of strategic alignment.
2: Excellent. And
0: Gary, what's the work you're involved in
2: at the moment? In two main areas. One is uh, helping. Uh, small businesses or growing businesses who are not investment ready get investment ready so helping the teams come together and write a coherent business plan that can articulate clearly to future investors where the value is that they seek so that that will support the uh, fundraising process and because I build it with the teams it's it's owned by the teams so Companies sometimes make the mistake of outsourcing that, and then it's not their plan, and then they don't they don't really speak to it well. If you build it with the team, then the, the team owns the plan, which is more convincing for investors. So the second area is building a new strategy for businesses who uh, need a new strategy. So they're either faced with a turnaround situation or an acquisition situation where, where the ground is going to change. So that's what I'm up to at the moment.
0: So can we just spend a a moment, Gary, on what is strategy and what isn't it? Because I think a lot of people really don't have a clue.
2: Yeah, no, no, thanks for dropping me in it, straight (laughs) off. My pleasure. Well, (laughs) it's your your game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've got a five-word answer for that question, uh, Marcus. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Strategy is basically a story of how or where value is to be found by the business and how you're going to get there so i always start with the current customers the business has because really when you're making strategy the first thing you've got to do is to learn from where you are now who do we have as customers what value do they get what value do they uh, do we provide? What value do we get from the customers? Because all customers aren't equal. And the, the reason we do that is we have to find where the opportunity is. And that we always work with several groups of customers, and not all groups of customers are equal. And some of those groups, a subset of those groups will represent where our future growth will be found. And then it is a case of once we've identified those customers, understanding what they will need now and what they will need in the future and understanding how we put ourselves in a position to win and grow that customer community. And that really is simply what a strategy is. It's where are we going to play and how are we going to win? That's all I've got to say on the subject.
0: Excellent. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's kick off with purpose. Patrick, I'm going to start with a quote from Henry Ford, that a business or an organization that makes nothing but money is a poor business. I'd love your response to that as someone who's operating in a not-for-profit environment, but having a massive impact on not only the lives of citizens, but the environment in which business operates. That's right. And it's,
1: it's a fascinating area to discuss because ironically, we have based our innovation strategy on a, when we, when we went around uh, trying to sell our idea within the, the city, we always started with um, the golden circle. You know, I'm sure many of you have seen the TED talk, which states that you have to start with why. Everything has to start with why. And before you start discussing what you're going to do or how you're going to do it, you have to understand why we're doing it. And the the basic story within the city of Helsingborg is that if we continue to do things the way we are doing them now, even with developments in our current structures and our current deliveries and our processes and and the value we create, we will not survive as a city because the world is changing at such a pace that, that the income that the city gets from taxpayers will not cover the costs of what we're expected to deliver within the next 10 to 15 years. So if we just change incrementally, we will not survive. We have to make quantum leaps. We have to radically innovate our ways of working so that we can continue to create the value we're expected to create with the money that that exists. So the why is about being uh, of service to the community and being able to maintain that that service in the long run or even in the medium to, to short run. Ironically, we have also established a bunch of KPIs so that we're not necessarily measuring value created in terms of income as like you would in the private sector, but we do have a a bunch of KPIs to be able to follow whether or not we are developing our capacity to work with ideas, to put ideas into tests, to create innovation pilots, and then to scale these pilots and, and, and actually be able to harvest the value that we we thought would, would um, be created. Uh, as I said, ironically, the, the irony here is that many of the people we're working with are highly stressed by the fact that we have created these KPIs. And we feel that we are hunting the KPIs rather than the value. And of course, no, we, we want to create value for society. That is the whole point. But this is such a large transition that if we don't have some way of following our progress, we won't know where if we're moving. Also, being a public um, a public entity, we're completely transparent. And the media expect to us to report what we do with our money. And of course, the politicians yeah. whose whose paycheck is dependent on being you know voted back into into office, are dependent on being able to explain what we're doing with money. So this is a very exciting, exciting sort of um, tug of war between sort of focusing on creating value and being able to explain what that value is and how we're actually making making progress towards creating the right prerequisites for for creating value. I don't know what your thoughts on that is. I I feel sometimes KPIs will sidetrack you and they become sort of their own reason for for being, for existing, such as money. Making money is is one KPI, whether or not you're creating
0: value. I think there's a really important point to make here, which is that... If we're clear about the outcomes that we are trying to achieve, and the KPIs help us to measure our progress towards them, questions I like to ask, and I'm pretty sure I got these from my pal, Bob Mester. What are the jobs that people, prospects, customers are trying to get done? What progress are they making? How do they measure what matters? How do they make their money? How do they measure their success? What are their struggling moments? How can we help them achieve their outcomes? What's coming next? And I I don't think people spend anywhere near enough time asking themselves the right questions around measurement. We'll go into this in a lot more detail because I've got a couple of loaded uh, barrels of my shotgun and a very large soapbox on this. Gary, in the preamble to this, you talked about how businesses are valued on the basis of tangible assets. But the most successful businesses um, have created intangible assets. And a fabulous example of this was the fight between Mercedes and Tesla. In 2019, Mercedes sold about 80,000 C Class Mercedes in the US. And it cost them about $1,000 per customer to acquire them. Meanwhile, Tesla, never having produced a single unit of the Type C Tesla car, created a community where they started a conversation around the environment, fossil fuels, and internal combustion engines. And they sold 200, pre-sold, 247,000 units of the Tesla Model C at an average cost of customer acquisition of $6. Now, Amazon is a shining example, despite their tax position, of a company that has created intangible assets. Apple, to a large degree, has done a very similar thing. So Gary, let me bring you in on this, because this was your point. Can you build out on that, please?
2: Yeah, I'd I'd like to combine Patrick's point on quantum leaps, which I think is very important. I want to bring in what you've just talked about and in intangible assets, and I want to end up with a three-word definition of strategy that I should have said in the first place. Now, <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd pull this off, I need a medal,
0: right? <laughs> Excellent. I shall right. send you an old star in the chat.
2: <laughs> right, strategy and quantum leaps. I absolutely subscribe to what... Patrick was saying in that every business should ask themselves, is incremental good enough? Okay, because that has impact on your sustainability as a business, and I don't think enough businesses are asking, is incremental good enough? And that is your trigger to go and do strategy. And strategy then, as Patrick articulated, is about a set of big bets for the future. So you've got to have an opinion about the future. And because you can't be everything to everybody, you've got to make some bets. So strategy is choices. And there's the three-word thing there. Strategy is choices, right? I've I've, I've ticked that one. But on your big bets, there are two types of big bets. And people hoping for hyper growth have to make these big bets, right? Because otherwise, they won't get the hypergrowth. the first kind of bet is that is the thing that leads to direct growth so that is a bet that actually grows directly a market that we know about and it's basically based on a set of tangible assets that we have and leveraging those assets in a better way the second type of big bet is one about position is a big bet that says if we grow a community or position ourselves or have a platform in this area, then whatever happens in the future, we are best positioned to react and leverage that uh, platform or community to whatever opportunity arises in the future. And some of the big valuations that we're seeing on. Companies coming to market now are based on that less tangible position value. That uh, you know, and I'm no expert in how to define it, but actually, it's 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 all to do with building your view of the world and articulating it effectively to a set of investors so that investors get excited about it and you can say well that's not very tangible and that's a big you know that's a the investor making a big bet but actually the world due to technology and the way in globalization the world is working now in a series of very fast opportunities emerging that the best positioned companies End up realizing. So your job in strategy is A to create direct value, but also to position yourself at indirect value. I don't know if any of that was clear or made any sense.
0: No, absolutely. Patrick, your response?
2: I like the way you just
1: define strategy as making choices. Uh, And one of the big challenges for many organizations is understanding that if you do A, you cannot do B. Um, you cannot do both. Making choices always comes with, a, uh, with some kind of a consequence, a cost. And sometimes that is leadership. And you, you call that, I think you use the term, uh, making a bet, making a bet about the future.
0: It's making um, trade-offs as well.
1: Yeah. Trade-offs, I guess, is a good word. And, and I, uh, I just like to, I remember reading a book, it might've been back in university, and I can't remember who wrote it, but the title was, What is Strategy and Does It Matter? And I remember, if I remember correctly, that what the, the point-making by the author was that many successful leaders and enterprises like to tell the story of their strategy in the aftermath. As a, when they tell the story of how they got where they got, they like to tell the story as if they made conscious decisions. But most often it is the leaders and the organizations that are quickest at adopting to changing circumstances that survive and thrive. And what they should be telling is the story about their ability to understand, make the right bets, and then actually move along the the path needed to, to win the bet. But often there is some kind of, and this might bring us back to our preamble about what type of leaders we find in big corporations, I think many people feel they have to tell a story about that they knew. We knew 10 years ago that ABC would happen. This is why we have devised this strategy and we fulfilled all the steps and we've accomplished our goals because they feel the need to tell that story. They can't tell the story. We had no idea what we were doing. We had to make things up as we went along. We had to make new decisions every day. and Half of the time, we were re-evaluating decisions we'd made half a year before or a year before. That's not a compelling story to tell if you want to be the powerful leader, right? The one—I don't know what term we used earlier on. I think we were sort of um, bordering on on psychopaths and and that type of you know psychotic behavior. And I don't mean to imply that I have worked with any psychotic leaders, but I've heard they do exist.
0: If you read Bob Hare and Robert Bibiak's book *Snakes in Suits*, they make the point that on death row, only three percent of the prison population are clinically psychopathic, but in the American boardroom, 5% of board members are clinically psychopathic. It's a damning indictment of how capitalism has evolved, that it's it's a home where psychopaths feel confident and comfortable, and where their behaviors are actually recruited, let alone applauded, for uh, being good practice burning people out, treating them like a a utility, dehumanizing people, driving environments of uh, needless high stress that create mental burnout, mental ill health, high staff turnover, dysfunctional teams, uh, environments where people are constantly blaming one another rather than aligning. That strikes me as an act of gross incompetence on behalf of a board and investors who encourage that because the cost of that is that companies that have highly aligned highly engaged employees make nearly 300% more profit per employee if you're an investor surely you want your business to be as profitable as possible but the way things have been set up is profit doesn't really seem to matter growth and revenue do because If we can pop a notional, fictional valuation, I was chatting to uh, one of my CEOs yesterday, and he said, in edtech, educational technology, the gearing is 40 times earnings for a valuation. How can you possibly value a business at 40 times earnings, when it is still in the experimental stage and has not been proven and is not profitable and is not yet sustainable. I think we've lost our way. And so um, this is my political economic rant. When Milton Friedman came up with the idea that we should all worship at the Church of Finance on the altar of shareholder value, we put the financial cart before the customer and our people, horses, and that has dehumanized the entire process. And so I look, certainly in sales, I look at the burnout rates, the turnover. It's astronomically expensive, not only financially, but in terms of the human cost. And I think part of the issue here is that people are in such a rush. They've been sold this myth by venture capital and private equity, not all, but certainly the majority, that if you get into massive debt and you have enormous amounts of investment, where your shareholding is diluted, you're going to end up producing this unicorn. Now, we know that the failure rate in VC is 80 to 90%. Now, many of those are experiments, so you expect them to fail. But it is terrifyingly high. And it's often down to a bet on a product or a company that doesn't have a market fit, where there is poor leadership, and they fail to go out and sell it to customers, because they don't talk to customers. So what I struggle with is, given the pace of change, and given the impact technology is having, why are we not asking better questions before we start throwing a load of money into companies? And start creating this bubble because I, I think it is a bubble. Gary?
2: The short answer is that most people wouldn't know a, a good strategy or a good business plan if it was thrown at them or they were slapped in the face with it because very few exist. And secondly, senior team leaders I've met don't read anything in any depth, they've got they no could run time. For president. Oh they run their lives in thirty minute zoom sessions now. I mean, it's ridiculous. you can't fucking do anything it is <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work with my thought process, which is to 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 chew something over and explore the ins and outs of something ever, uh, over a two hour period, and then you pull the three the three nuggets out of the out of the gravel. We've got ourselves into this treadmill where we we, we find ourselves very difficult to to lift out. I think the interesting thing is your rant about overvaluation actually conflicts with my my previous rant and actually what Patrick was saying, and Patrick, as usual, has articulated something much better in his second language than I managed to do so in my first. (laughs) Um, You know, that many of the successful companies are the quickest in adopting to new circumstances, and agility is very much to be prized. Now, if you were looking at the EdTech company and you believed that they were building some very valuable IP that would position them in the market for where the market was going to go in the future, then you might value it highly. But my suspicion is that not many of those investors have, A, had access to information that would give them that belief. And B, probably haven't read anything about it and they're following the rest of the investors. <laughs> so they're looking for a bet, a true bet, right? Yeah. So-
1: but that sort of lies in the, in, the, in the nature of the word bet, doesn't it? You cannot know. That's the whole point. That's, that's how yes. you define a bet. If you had a given outcome, it wouldn't be a bet. And this is, I think this is where we're getting close to the um, core of this issue here, and it has to do with uncertainty and risk. Uh, and when we invest money, we wanna have certainty. And if, yes. if somebody gives us certainty, they can give us 2% growth with certainty, we say, oh, ah, yeah, I like that, but I prefer 10. Or actually I want 100% or 1,000%, because yes. that's what this sort of venture capitalist dream has, has created, this idea that we can, with certainty, invest and get these huge outcomes. But we all know that, well, at least I, I adhere to, to a thought that there is no certainty, there is only uncertainty. And the only way to, to manage that is to embrace it. And that also means that you have to be honest about that you do not know. We think we have an idea, we're mm-hmm. going to test it. We're gonna follow it up every day uh, to, make, to learn and understand so that we can fail fast or continue to grow whatever works. And that's how we're going to manage our business. But I think what what investors, professional and and amateurs alike, are looking for is certainty. So they're looking for the leaders who are telling them that they will succeed, why they will succeed, and how much money they're going to make. And then they just sort of buy into that certainty, even though we all know it's it's all just made up.
0: I mean, we hardly know what's going to happen tomorrow. This, again, is really interesting because I think, people do not really understand the difference between risk and sacrifice. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value, and there is no upside. Risking is going from lower to higher value, with the possibility that you will lose some or all of what you've got. Now, when we're making bets, it makes more sense to make calculated bets. And so reflection, Asking difficult questions, not taking so long that you end up missing uh, the boat, but recognizing that there are patterns, there are trends. And the bet that Helsingborg has placed on you is that you will find ways to ensure that they are not bankrupt in the next 10 years and that you can continue to develop and deliver those services that citizens need. And I question the way our economy is set up. I read a very interesting, or I listened to a very interesting series of lectures called From Yao to Mao by The Great Courses. And it was a series of lectures of 4,000 years of Chinese history. China has had an empire of a billion people for 3,000 years. I believe it was Deng Xiaoping, the former Chinese premier, who was asked once by a journalist, what was the impact of World War II on China? And his response was, hmm, not sure, we're still deciding. Now, that long-term view is nigh on impossible for us to compete with when we operate on quarterly reporting cycles. And as a private business, and as a private organization, or one that isn't beholden to, the banks and investment houses that make up the market, I think it makes more sense to place those calculated bets and play the long game. If I look at the most successful businesses that have strong fundamentals, they don't prospect for a customer this month, this quarter. They're prospecting for customers who are going to be customers in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. They have moved away from being transactional. Uh, to being focused on the customer's outcome. Their pricing and compensation models are geared towards the outcome-based pricing, outcome-based compensation. And I think we really do need to rethink how we approach measurement. What do we measure? If we look at, there's a wonderful quote that a friend of mine, Bernard Hornung, generated yesterday in a conversation. And it's the conduct and behavior of the money behind you will permeate into the business. Let me repeat that. The conduct and behavior of the money behind you will permeate into the business. Yeah. Yeah. So while lots of organizations claim to be customer-centric and people are our greatest asset, if your compensation depends on hitting a quarterly number, When it comes to the end of the quarter, you will drive terrible behaviors into your sales force. In education, you made the comment about Patrick uh, being more eloquent in his second language. And I look at the the Nordics education systems. In Finland, children do not even attend school until the age of seven. And most classes, the teaching, the learning is done by the students because it's very collaborative. It's not a lecturist um, broadcasting to the audience. And so I'm really curious to understand, Patrick, your thoughts in terms of how that cultural foundation has shifted your thinking uh, and how you would compare it with maybe more of the Anglo-Saxon type of education.
1: This is a really interesting um, area of... uh, Have you guys seen the, the TED Talk? School is killing creativity. I think, yeah, isn't it? Uh, Ken Robinson sadly yeah, died recently. Really. Speaking of eloquent talkers, he's he's wonderful. He's both funny and and very thought provoking. And he uh, points out that our education system, overall in the West, if we just generalise to begin with, is a relic of of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and it's not oh. developed since then. And I think maybe, and I'm really out in deep water here, uh, but I would I would I would like to. No, could it be that the relative lateness of the Nordic countries when it comes to the the um, industrial revolution I mean we were maybe fifty or hundred years after Britain or or you know the states um, I, I'm not a historian, but i i I know that we were not uh, you know we're not as quick and we're relatively rural still actually in comparison to to the rest of Europe maybe our relative lateness resulted in us not really jumping on together on that bandwagon as as quickly as as the rest of the world and maybe that created together with a tendency of our politics to be a little bit more towards the left more social democratic maybe that those factors together have resulted in a philosophy about regarding school and teaching that is more about a communal learning effort than looking for results. For instance, uh, in, in in the Anglo-Saxon world, I know you get report cards from grade one. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are preschools where you get report cards. Yeah. Whereas in yeah. the Nordics, they are very careful about uh, giving young children grades. And of course, we have a debate here as well, a public debate, is that good or bad? Shouldn't children know whether they're doing the right thing or not? Uh, shouldn't parents know whether or not their children are succeeding at, at school? But I think they're asking the wrong question because grades do not necessarily tell us whether or not our children are learning something. I think we, we're just making it We're just we're trying to solve a complex problem with very simple solutions. And, and I know for a fact that if I, if I just look at myself, uh, and I moved a lot as a child and quite often my, my grades would drop the first year when I was at a new school. And then uh, and we, we moved in, in general about every th- three to four years. And overall, if I look historically now, I, I can see that my grades were much, much higher the third and the fourth year. So I've come to wonder, did my grades really reflect what was going on with me the first year when I was new at a school? because I actually think I was learning a lot more. I was just learning to adapt to new circumstances and and a new standard and maybe also a different language or a different cultural setting. So I actually think I should have gotten much higher grades the first years because I was working much harder and was actually achieving learning. It's just that my grades did not reflect what I was actually doing. The value that I was actually creating for myself and for my surroundings.
0: I'm curious, um, I mean, the the guy who changed the Swedish education system is a guy called Klaus Melander, and he's set up a business called Salami, and they do uh, simulation training. So they take what he implemented within the Swedish education system, which is then permeated throughout the Nordics. And there's a lovely quote from him, uh, which I think feeds what you've just said, which is, don't overestimate people's knowledge and don't underestimate their capabilities. Because you had the capability, but as you were adapting, what you were doing was you were applying the knowledge that you did have, but in a different circumstance. So it was uncomfortable, and you weren't familiar. You hadn't yet found your uh, your groove. And so I'm sounding like a 60s hippie. <laughs> and I think one of the challenges here is we really need to reassess So for example, in my world, I think one of the single um, most damaging aspects of training and learning and development is that often it's a tick box, and it's focused on the wrong end of the problem. The single biggest factor that I see causing young salespeople to fail is not their lack of energy, their lack of effort. It's their lack of business acumen. They don't understand the moving parts within a business. So the only thing they have to revert to is product knowledge. So then they talk about features and functionality without really understanding the why, the outcome, the jobs that people are trying to get done, their struggling moments. And as a result, they become irrelevant because, from a CEO's perspective or a CFO's perspective, why the hell are you telling me this? Speak to one of my geeks. And so I think we have to reassess and start asking simple but difficult questions. Often, the simple questions are really key. So one of my favorite examples is in the 1960s, I think it was 1970s, the British Army commissioned time and motion study on uh, artillery firing, so people firing big guns. And it was taking about 27 seconds around. And what would happen is there were two soldiers would carry the shell to the back of the gun. Someone else would open it. They'd shove it in. And then one of the uh, people who carried the shell would turn around, march backward a few paces, turn around, put one hand behind his back and hold up his other hand. And the captain who was doing this study was befuddled by this. And he asked them, "Why do you do that?" And he said, "Well, that's the way we were trained." And said, so, "Well, why? No idea. Speak to the gunnery sergeant." So he goes to the gunnery sergeant, and his response was, "That's the way I was trained to train them. That's the way we train them, and that's the way we do it in this man's army, sir." Anyway, this chap was in the pub one night, and this old geezer came in, and he'd been work- You know, he'd been in the gunners in uh, either the this or in the First World War. And he said, you were in the gunners. Well, why do they do it this way? Oh, that's easy. He's holding a horse. <laughs> they haven't used horse-drawn artillery for fuck knows how long, but they were holding an imaginary horse. We don't ask the question, "Well, why do we do this? Why did we start doing it? Is it still relevant? If our behaviors and our actions are still relevant, yes, carry on doing that. Okay, Uh, but we have to ask, is there a better way? And I fundamentally believe we are lazy as a species, and we are not asking enough of those questions. So, Gary, let me bring you in on this, because I I know you see people being stuck in their ways uh, very often. And I'm curious about the kind of uh, discussion and fights and blame that go on whilst people defend an indefensible position. Well yeah i
2: mean there's a lot of stuck in their ways behavior in businesses and and i think it's because people are very much wrapped into the short term of operations and actually don't make space to actually think about what the future might be so in people's days they do not make space for talking about the future. So if you ask people how much, what percentage of your week do you spend on planning or building the future business, it will be, oh, they'll have to really think, and it will be a low number, okay? And that's why people are stuck. And I think it goes back also to your simple question. And the simple question that can unstick would be of your current customers now, the current types of customers you have, What will be in five years' time? The customer uh, will you have more customers of each type, less customers of each type, and why? And actually, that then gets people into the conversation. It actually connects the financial world with the think about the future world. Because if you go, well, we've got customers of this type now, will we have more or less in the future? Then they have to bring in advances in technology, competitive strategies that they're seeing holes or gaps in their own behaviours. And so actually, you get them into that space. But once I've got people in a room to talk about that, they don't have any problem in engaging. What I do have a problem is, is getting work. No, sorry. I mean, getting people into the room in order to talk about their future, because actually, you know, and it goes back to what we were saying before, investing money for no immediate tangible return, only a paper exercise, which is a business plan or a strategy, which isn't by many seen as sufficiently tangible. People are reluctant to do it. But once you get them in the room and ask them the right simple questions, they will do it. The problem I see is that they don't get in the room. Mm. And the other problem, sorry, I'll continue. When they get in the room. They are not open with each other, so there are dominant personalities that they either are. Oh, can't remember the word. Is it obviously Patrick? Help me out with the word. Um, <laughs> they're they're, they're bullied. They don't want to cross. Obstinate. You know. So I've yeah, I've I've seen behaviours where if the boss is in the room, the the people under won't say anything that they think the boss might not approve of so i've had people in the room who won't who are clearly not speaking to their full capability and also when you get a management team a leadership team in the room there is politics there are dynamics between the individuals because there are psychopaths in the room sometimes and also because of the short-termism behavior leads to Life in a management team being a kind of functional competition. to- uh...
0: There's a really interesting book by Safi Bakal called Loom Shots. And uh, he writes about how companies start out being innovative, hotbeds of imagination. And as they grow, there's a tipping point where they shift from being innovative to where playing it safe starts to occur. And then they shoot down. The great ideas, and they become very conservative. Nokia is a classic example. Nokia created the smartphone, and middle management was screaming, saying, we've got to uh, pursue this. And senior management said, no, we're perfectly happy making bricks. And that's how we made our money. And uh, people cannot let go of what made them successful. So Patrick, I'd I'd love to bring you in for a moment as well, because I imagine, given the work that you do, You have to be a consummate diplomat and uh, have the ability uh, to draw in people to the discussion and have them feel that they have the potency, they have um, the right to speak their mind, and that they're going to be protected for, uh, for doing so. So I'm curious how you do that.
1: But that is, you're, you're, and the spot on, because this is a, a part of the challenge is creating the environment where people feel that it is okay to speak out, it is okay to question, it is okay to think thoughts that were previously not allowed to be thought. And and it's much easier if you have a um, an environment where it is explicitly stated that we are going to challenge the as-is. Like a city, with the city of Helsingborg, Making this very bold statement two years ago that we are going to be ranked as the most innovative city in in Europe, and within a year they were ranked second, which is incredible. But I mean, this is you know coming from the bush basically, you know, without any yeah. pre- uh, experience. But making that statement, regardless of whether you achieve it or not, just making the statement creates a setting where you're telling people we are going to challenge the as is. And and I think Gary has has touched on a lot of the challenges of of getting people to experience a safe place where it is okay to to speak your mind. Incidentally, just a a tangent, when the, the few years where I was in a more senior management position, I spent a lot of time reflecting on whether or not I should be in meetings. Whereas many of my colleagues always wanted to be in the important meetings, I sometimes thought to myself, I should probably not be there. For explain it's just the reason that Gary brought up that I want the people who actually know shit to, to be able to solve the problem. And if I'm there, maybe they won't, you know. But anyway, it's sidetracked. One thing I think is it, that you need to embrace is the fact that big organizations are complex. And by complexity I mean there is they're very complicated, and it's very difficult to understand how they're complicated. It's difficult to see, and it's difficult to know what will happen in the large scheme of things, if we stop doing A, or for instance, you you brought in the example of the horse not being there anymore. I like to think of that as sediments. You know, we we build our organizational processes and structures and, and abilities on different things that we were doing previously. And then after a while, we lost track of why we're doing them and nobody really knows. And sometimes you don't have anybody who's questioning it, but other times people are questioning it, but you do not know the answer you do not know what will happen if we stop doing A. And since I've worked uh, a large part of my uh, career in IT, I also know that in, in, when you have a, a, a largely outdated legacy, as you call old IT systems, you sometimes end up in a position where you've had a turnover of, 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 um, uh, of people and the documentation is maybe not up to speed or maybe it exists, but nobody knows where it is. And you might not know what a certain server actually does. So you would think that, well, it's easy, turn it off and see what happens. <laughs> At some point, yeah, and of course, you can you can monitor the traffic and the data and you try to figure out how is this integrated, what what function is being used, you know, what happens to the data, when is it when is it called for? But it's not always that simple, And I've actually been in a situation where a server or a pack of servers were identified to not being involved in any processes taken out, but then it turned out that they were only involved once a year for uh, at that moment in time, very critical process. And of course they didn't uh, monitor it for more than a year. So they didn't know until it stopped working that whatever February or March or wherever it was supposed to do something. And I think uh, as a metaphor that, that shows a little bit what many organizations have to have as a challenge. And this is why the little companies or the large companies that are mainly made up of intangible assets are more agile because they don't have this legacy of processes and organizations and structures, yeah. sediments that I, that I like to call them. They don't exist. They're just a bunch of people in a boardroom making quick decisions. That's yeah. like, I mean, I don't want to, I, I realize that lots of people work at Amazon, but compared to the traditional incumbents in that, in that business, they have a much easier time adopting and changing since they don't even own everything. I mean, all all the parts of of their value
0: creation are not even owned by the company, right? And it's part of the culture. Hmm. So Gary, I know you had something to say on this. I was uh, going to support Patrick in, in
2: saying there's a lot of defensive behavior that goes on with functions, like how dare you comment on how I should run my function is a behavior That I have seen. They don't say that to me more than once, but um, (laughs) they they say that to their colleagues, which I think is very damaging and that culture is allowed to exist. Other thing I'd like to pick up on from Patrick is the complexity of organizations. Now, people, as organizations grow, they confuse the number of people and moving parts in the organization with the complexity of the customer journey. As I said once at Dixon's, you're just a fucking shop. (laughs) You just have 600 of them. So your customer journey has to be simple. Otherwise, human beings would not know what to do in any situation along that customer journey. And somehow, they seem to manage. So there is, in all companies, a simple visualization of their own customer journeys, it exists. But what happens is that it doesn't exist end-to-end because there is no owner of the end-to-end customer journey and nobody actually writes it down in a compelling visual way. And coming back to Patrick's point about digital transformation, something I've done quite a lot of, the enabling, the single enabling factor of turning around a, a struggling digital transformational project is asking the simple question, when it all works, how will things work? How will this store work? Okay, a call comes in, then what will happen? Then what will happen? Or the lorry pulls up at the warehouse. What happens next? What happens next? What happens next? And I've come to projects that are 18 months, 24 months old, and there is nothing written down describing how the business will work when this huge investment made in systems has been made and completed and we've all finished and we've gone back to working. And I have come in going, okay, I know fuck all. Tell me what we're, where the finishing line is, what we're trying to build here. And nobody can do it, and nobody has done it in 18 months. And it is shocking. And it is relatively simple to do. It's very enjoyable, it uses a lot of post-its and a lot of different colors. And people, everybody, even the shop floor people get involved. And we're all, we, we build a picture of the business and how it will work. And we identify the four or five key areas that really need to be worked out to unblock this whole thing and create the value. And you know what? The people in the business are fully capable of doing that. All they need is somebody like myself and a pack of Post-its. And I think, well, you know what? Shouldn't management be doing this? You know, shouldn't each company have a picture of how their business works on the wall somewhere? And that's just an open question because... How do people understand their role in the business? What happens before, what happens next? How important is what I do to the people about to come? You know, that all of those
0: questions are critical in working together. In the preamble, you talked about how so much management is about manipulation instead of engaging. And uh, you alluded to the idea that there is a formula for working well together. I'd love to explore that in the, uh, the few minutes that we have left.
2: Uh, yes. Well, you know, the language used in management and, and change management, first of all, is about how do we make people, well, we've got to do this change. Well, first of all, strategy is built in small groups of financially uh, entitled people, right? Shareholders' boards and the financially entitled shareholders on the leadership team because the other people The implication of that is it's being done to the other people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas in reality, all the knowledge of what actually is going on with your customers and your processes and where the improvement opportunities are exists with the people in the business. Okay. So you're missing out on a huge piece of knowledge. But the implication is on making strategy just at the top team level, just in engaging those people, is that you're about to do something on. To the other people and that is in fact correct in a large number of cases because the shareholders are on the short term you know in three years we want to be out of this and we want to make out like bandits and piss off right <laughs> so that's their horizon and it's a short-term horizon and it's the wrong horizon because the people and i'll tell you why it's the wrong horizon the people in your business a represent your brand and your value to your customer every single day. And you don't. You're a manager, you're stuck in an office, right? So the salespeople, the people who deliver the service, and the people who talk to customers, engage them, they are your value. Secondly, those people are, uh, are the people who will deliver your strategy. So, whatever strategy you make, you're relying on those people to actually change their behavior and do different things to enrich you. Or, or sorry, I meant improve the value of the whole business. And thirdly, those people are the future of your business because innovation comes from. Where does innovation come from? It doesn't come from the fucking boardroom, right? It comes from the people who are out there with a the customer thinking, you know what? What I'm doing is stupid. We could do this, right? And so you are losing innovation if you ignore the people. Now, To come back and answer the original question, (laughs) which I haven't answered yet, is, is there a formula? My experience has been rescuing large transformation projects. That was where my early experience has been. And I had the choice, should I piggyback? And I was offered the choice of piggybacking on the company's existing management processes. Listen Gary we have a management meeting every Monday you can have an hour of that meeting to talk about the strategic projects and uh, you know the transformation project now every Monday do you know how much of that hour i actually got nothing right because what happened was the priorities of the, the operational priorities of the business pushed my build the future priorities off the agenda, I got nothing. So very quickly, I said, listen, guys, thanks for the offer of the Monday. You're all coming back Tuesday morning, and it's my fucking meeting, and you're coming here with no other agenda than to talk about how we're going to get from where we are now, point A, to point B, when we've finished this broken shit, right? And that then transformed... The culture in the business, because what I actually did is said, look, your operational shit, you've got your own culture over there. But this, I'm going to separate out the build the future conversation into a very specific time frame. And I'm going to have a set of different activities that I can bore people with for ages, but there's not many of them, two or three that are not, that are totally disconnected from running the business and are totally focused in what do we have to do to build the future or deliver the transformation. And that, more than anything else, uh, increased, uh, well, just just gave me the chance to succeed.
0: Excellent. So, Patrick, in conclusion, we need to wrap up now. What are your final thoughts in response to that? I thought this was very thought-provoking, and, and Gary just helped me realize that, I was actually
1: in a uh, sort of a coaching conversation with a high-level manager recently who was talking about a transformation of a department that had not really gotten on board the overall movement within the, the, um, the big organization, right? And uh, she pointed out to me that her future leaders, the future leadership was not the same as her current management team. Absolutely. So so she ran her management team by the book, you know, with the operational issues. And then she had a subset of that team with other people and leaders from the organization working on the future of their organization. And I thought that, I think that what she's done is, is obviously she's identified what, what Gary just uh, described. Um, she not only realized that they wouldn't have the quality time needed in the current management team, that's one uh, obvious insight. But the other, I think, was that she was manifesting the fact that these are different entities, different existences. Um, and right now they coexist, but they won't in the future because the old organization will die And the new one will succeed. Uh, And and I find that um, it was quite, at first, it was very thought provoking to hear Gary describe that setup with with an alternative meeting instead of using the existing management meeting. Uh, And then I realized that I'd actually just heard somebody describe that to me, except I didn't understand that was what they were describing. And I think sometimes leadership is about manifesting with arenas or Sometimes it's meeting places, or as in this uh, case, leadership groups or leadership teams. I think there is, a, there is a great value in using those and who is there and what the, the agenda is to manifest uh, an ambition to create change or to move an organization. I think that's
0: quite revealing, actually. And I think there's a, another critical part to this, which is that, and this is to bring uh, Gary's earlier point. In, which is that they need a plan and they need to design the positions of the future well in advance as they design the business they intend to become. They need to design who, uh, what, what roles will be required and they need to identify those future leaders and those future people who will fill those positions uh, for the future. If you don't do that, then you're always reacting and you're always playing a game of catch up. If you have a plan with budgets and trigger points that allow you to then recruit well in advance so you can build a bench of ideal candidates for the business that you're going to be in six months, a year, three years, five years, you can start creating a runway to develop and home grow your own future leaders. If you don't have that talent in terms of capability and willingness, then you can go out to the market and you can build a bench. But you can only do that if you plan. So I'd like to conclude on this, which is that without a plan, chances are you're going to fail. The reality is the plan will not survive contact with the enemy. So it needs to be uh, have built into it. Uh, the ability to adapt. Managers cannot allow their ego to get in the way of the desired outcomes. And your people genuinely are your greatest asset, but you have to give them the ability to speak their mind and tell the cold, hard, ugly truth so that together you can collaborate to create that better future. Is that a fair summary?
1: definitely yeah. yeah excellent
0: okay so we need to wrap up sadly really looking forward to the next one patrick how can people get a hold of you
1: well just look me up on linkedin patrick spelled in the irish manner with a ck um, in sweden we don't we can't afford c's so the typical swedish patrick would just be with a k uh, but i'm um, my parents were international, so they gave me the Patrick with a CK. Sorry, very long introduction. Look okay. me up, Patrick Lindquist on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with anybody who's interested in um, innovation and, and transformational change.
0: And that's L-I-N-D-Q-V-I-S-T. Yep. Couldn't afford the W. <laughs> or the U. Gary.
2: Yeah, same. Uh, Look me up on LinkedIn, Gary Mitchell, and put an action word like strategy or transformation or program or something like that, and then I should come up. Also have my website, www.gary-mitchell.com. And um, yeah, ask me anything, happy to help. I'm crap at pitching, so my first contact with people is, if I can help you with a problem, then we get to know each other.
0: That's it. Excellent. So thank you both so much. Massively helpful and very insightful.
1: Thank you, Marcus. Thank you.
0: So if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable, profitable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees throughout your entire revenue operation and customers who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief chat. My email is marcus at last-last.com or you can direct message me on LinkedIn and please do feel free to connect. Quick pitch, we are growing a global community called Sales of Force for Good. And our mission is to remind us that we exist because of, not in spite of the customer. You can find us using the hashtag ProCustomer and the objective is to ensure that we capture the best practices that allow us to build ethical sales and marketing operations, raise the bar in the selling profession, and make it an aspirational career choice. So, if this is the kind of thing that wets your whistle, then please do get in touch. We're very keen to build our organization or our community's membership. And we're looking for volunteers to tackle the hardest problems that are holding sales back. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.